Bitcoin is, you know, a multi-decade, multi-generational, incredible opportunity. Doesn't mean that the water's always warm and smooth. There's chop along the way. And so, you know, planning for those downside scenarios and trying to manage risk first and upside second is, you know, is the prudent way to do it. And, and there's operators and companies that are out there within our industry that have done their best and made good conservative decisions and still blown up. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using to buy Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into today's interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. From the people behind sportsbet.io, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against other people and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino really is the best online casino for Bitcoiners. So if you want to find out more, head over to BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is at bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. Please remember to gamble responsibly. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Ledin, to the podcast. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. And with the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation, and they have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency, and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am now a customer of theirs. So if you want to find out more about Ledin, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Jan, Brady and Corey for years, and they're pulling out all the stops to make this the biggest Bitcoin only event ever. I'll be emceeing the conference alongside Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. This conference is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences such as a surf simulator and an 80s arcade gaming lounge, which I cannot wait to see as I am a gamer from the 80s. They are inviting all the smartest minds in the Bitcoin space to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption, mining, and to lightning. Swan are also offering a massive 20% discount to this amazing event to listeners of my show. So just head over to pacificbitcoin.la and use the code PETER at the checkout. That is pacificbitcoin.la, P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.la and use the code PETER. Also, today we have Ledger, and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. 
Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus, and with its larger screen, it makes it easier for you to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. Now, the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And you know what? I've been a customer of Ledger since 2017. I love my original Nano S, and I now love the S Plus. Ledger is the smartest way and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Off your fucking phone, we're recording I'm putting, it. I'm putting sleep mode on. <laughs> Harry Sadek. Hello, man. Hey. How you doing? This is good. Every time we come back to New York, we get Harry back on the podcast now. Well, when, when I live in a new city, you're going to have to come somewhere else frequently. Are we going to have to talk where that is? Are you secret? I'm, I am uh, strongly looking towards the great state of Tennessee. I thought you were going to say that. Actually, I think you told me that last time. Nashville, man. Well, you can go to Bitcoin Park, go to the Bitcoin meetup there. I love Bitcoin Park. I love Rod. Rod's Mills. They're, they're, they crush. Have you seen how uh, thin and athletic Rod's got? He's my inspiration. He he's all over the one meal a day thing. Yeah, he's like he texted me the other day. And he's like, I'm just I'm just so addicted to the gym right now. He looks good, man. He looks really good. He looks really good. But they we went to Bitcoin Park. Me and yeah. Danny they've they've killed it. What they've done there, him and Odell, and it's it's so impressive. Yeah, uh, very impressive. Well, look, uh, that will be another reason not to come to New York. There you go. There's no one left. There's no one left. There's fewer and fewer <laughs> reasons to come to New York these days. I know. Sad man. Well, listen, that's funny actually. Like we were saying, when I first started the pod, it used to be uh, fly to New York, do a bunch of interviews. I'd maybe go to Florida and do one. Uh, maybe go to Texas and do two. Then I'd go to LA and do six. And you know, maybe go to San Francisco and Portland, and then I'd go home. That was kind of like they were the places. But it's not that anymore. Now it's uh, Austin, Nashville, Miami. They're the three main places to go. I bet Vegas is going to climb that list. Well, we know one person there. Yeah. Yeah, we know one person there. I, can't, oh. I don't know if he's public, so I won't say it. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Vegas would be cool. We're always happy to go to Vegas. Going to be there in November. Um, LA is still good. I think some people can't give up the beach. I think they still want to pay 68% tax, whatever the fuck they California is a shit coin. California is a shit coin, but, yeah, some of us like a little bit of shit coin in it. <laughs> I, still, I still like LA. I do. I do. It's California. It's a beautiful place. Um, beautiful people. I'll still keep going there. <laughs> anyway, dude, we need to talk about mining again. Your speciality subject. It it hasn't gotten boring yet. It's funny as well because it's like, I remember somebody set up a mining podcast a while back. And I was like, what are you going to talk about? You know, like mining is a subtopic of Bitcoin. I can cover that. How are you going to cover that every week? I totally get it now. It's his own like wild industry that's spawned all these things we didn't even expect. How, how do you take it all in? Um, I think about it very similarly to Bitcoin, where you know I showed up for Bitcoin for the um, for the sweet sweet financial gains, um, and ended up you know eating steak and reshaping all these different areas that I thought I had a good understanding of, um, and so you know Bitcoin is like the great teacher that forces you back to to kindergarten in in all these different topics. Um, and mining for me was the same experience, where you know it said, oh, you know you think you know about the world around you fool uh, and then it, and then it sends you back it makes you learn from from first principles around uh, energy around power markets physics um, history 
the same way that Bitcoin did. You know, so you know, Bitcoin made me learn about the history of money. Um, mining made me learn about the history of ports and cities, and you know, how does a young country, you know, being that we're in a, a relatively young country compared to your your uh, balmy isle. Um, you know, how, do, how does a new place develop and what are the design decisions that get put into sort of the emergent concept that was America and how are those emergent design decisions playing themselves out for us today in a brand new industry? So it, it's been fun. Well, it, it's this thing of calling Bitcoin this organic creature, creature that just seems to be growing into this thing that all these areas we didn't expect, that we didn't realize, that we didn't see coming. And I mean, I said it on the pod a bunch of times. I'm like, I'm most excited about the unknown unknowns, the things that are going to come out in the future that Bitcoin or mining does that nobody could think about, that nobody could prepare for. Like the show we made with Adam Wright the other day, where we have a uh, an issue with climate change at the moment. Some people disagree. I think we do. You know, 41 <laughs> degrees in the UK uh, is a new record by some two degrees. Um, and the new records every year. We do have a climate issue. I'm sorry, scientists are right. Shut the fuck up. And, um, you know, whether you agree with it or not or whether you, whatever you think we should be doing about it, there is an indisputable fact that if you can go to a landfill site, put miners there, and turn methane into Bitcoin, it doesn't matter if you what you think of climate change. That is an industry that economically works and is good for the climate and creates Bitcoin. Nobody saw this shit coming. Well, how did? Yeah, yeah. Um that's the beauty of a market. When you when you offer a, a difficult uh, human problem up to a market, talk about the emergent, you know, sort of the the the, the untethered growth of of what Bitcoin looks like today versus um, versus some number of years ago. You know what's what's so great about it is that Bitcoin was born out of a extreme human problem, which was the uh, the moral hazard of governments being continuous bailouts in 2009 and an inventor or, or discoverer, depending on what you think of, of Bitcoin's origin story, um, looked at this problem of never-ending bailouts and said, there's a way to change money. And I believe that my discovery or my invention is going to be compelling enough to win value in the marketplace of monies. And so what I think we're seeing today is is the bolted on second order effect of that decision to create um, a monetary good that can compete on the merits with other monies. Um, and what we found is that a lot of people said, yes, this is working. We, we want to choose this one. Um, and so it's commanding sufficient purchasing power to be able to then turn its, its you know, eye of Sauron onto another industry and emerging human problem, which is we want to live in a beautiful planet and get to enjoy the abundance of advanced technology and not have to suffer the externalities of that enjoyment. And so what this superior monetary good is saying to that problem is it's saying, you guys are leaving a whole ton of meat on the bone. The way you do things today is wildly inefficient. And I'm going to prove to you how inefficient your current behavior is with a market mechanism because rewarding you for being efficient with your usage and efficient with your energy generation is going to be far more valuable when I pay you some percentage of these 900 new Bitcoin every day. And 
there's a lot of, you know, entrepreneurial young souls who are looking at that opportunity or maybe older souls and looking at that opportunity and saying, I want those Bitcoin and I think I know how to get them and I think I can introduce a net positive by doing so. And I think that my idea is the best in the marketplace because you're utilizing something that's naturally occurring and introducing an, a, a negative externality, methane in the atmosphere. Nobody's saying it's good. Um, and by solving this problem and getting paid to do so, what I'm not trying to do is argue to pass some bill through a legislative body of 80-year-olds. I'm just going to go and I'm going to do it and I'm going to get paid to do it and I'm going to solve your problem. And it's starting to flip the narrative. It's becoming harder and harder for people to claim that Bitcoin is bad for the environment, which they're still doing. It still exists. There's articles in the press and there's certain senators or Congress people are saying it, but it's flipping. I mean, we had it the other day. Who was that? The one where Senator Lummis replied to. That was Todd Wright. No, she replied She replied to another senator. Oh, she? Senator Durbin. Uh, oh, sorry. I thought you meant when you quote tweeted that. Yeah. Go and find out what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Let me push you. Yeah. Because I'm sensing a vibe shift. I am. The vibe shift is that Bitcoin is not bad for the environment. The vibe shift is that Bitcoin takes the energy and you have no right to it. Wow. Th this is moving goalposts. This is control freaks wanting to move the goalposts. This is, I hate Bitcoin. I can't give you a rational reason why, but I'm just going to keep moving the goalposts just to, to argue that case. Because I really do think six months ago or 12 months ago, the narrative was Bitcoin is creating emissions. And today, I think the narrative is Bitcoin is taking energy from deserving uses. Yeah, which also is patently not true. It's an even weaker argument. Mm -hmm. Like I, I could make the argument against Bitcoin for the environment. I could make that. And I can go and spread that to politicians and journalists and get those articles out there. You can do it because we have a, a, an environmental crisis. I, some people believe, some people don't. Let's just be very clear. I know that, that we do know that I believe there is. Uh, we, have a, we have an issue with a warming planet. And then people put that down to uh, burning of fossil fuels. So it's very easy to make the link and go, well, these Bitcoin miners, they're wasting energy. They're causing power plants, to coal plants to be fired back up. And they're using as much energy as Norway or some other bollocks, whatever measure they use, right, to make the argument. It's completely flawed, but you can make it in a way that somebody who isn't smart enough, who hasn't done the research, can put it out there. And we know it exists. And we know the influence it has because when somebody puts out one of those tweets, under it you see all the no-coiners. You've never heard of Bitcoin or only know a little bit about Bitcoin or repeating these things. I mean, I've had them. I've gone into arguments with people who clearly don't know anything about Bitcoin and they're making the same arguments. So what's that thing? It takes how much time to undo a mm -hmm. It's statement. like seven. You need seven positives for one negative yeah, or something. Yeah, undo that bullshit. But uh, you found it. I can't find the original tweet. I can find her response. But if you found her it's, response, it's isn't Sen it? Senator know? Dick Durbin. Yeah, I've got, I'm on his thing, but um, I can't find the actual original tweet. Has he deleted it? Maybe. It doesn't look like it, though. It's, she responded sort of in a separate thread, and she used a post a load of, like, Darren Feinstein. and the. Uh, I thought she retweeted it at the start of that thread. No, it's not in there. Um, unless it has been deleted, I don't know. That would be funny if he deleted it. It's fun when the, when the censors turn to self-censorship. Well, it's fun when a senator turn around, turns around to another one and gives them straight up facts. And, and, and you know, I know that it's frustrating and I know that um, sometimes it feels like not all parties are created equal when it comes to digesting information about Bitcoin. But 
the this is but th this is really an exciting time to be observing American politics because Bitcoin is the first bipartisan issue that I've ever seen in like in like years and years and years and years. It's it's um it's crossing the aisle in really interesting ways and it's um it's forcing conversation uh to the surface that hasn't happened. You know, I think we've got a we've got lots of crises um in these in these challenging modern times, but one of the pressing crises that I see is a crisis of debate where there's a lot of very tricky problems in front of us. I don't I think that you know the the world is a complicated place and answers are not obvious. Um, and the way to get to better answers is to have better conversations, and the way to have better conversations is to have people who don't agree talk. I found that tweet, by the way. He said, it's time to learn the truth about crypto. Let's start with the obscene amount of electricity needed to mine Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Families and businesses in America will pay the price for crypto's mining ventures. So that is that vibe switch. Yeah, I see what you're saying there. Well, I just I'm, I'm going to push you back on the uh, bipartisan. We believe it should be. Um, bipartisan, but it's not. There's definitely uh, more of a leaning to the right of senators who have adopted or support Bitcoin, and some of the criticisms tend to come more to the left. But look, look by the way, I'm with you. Um, we did an interview this day, the other day with a guy called Jason Meyer. He's writing a book, A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin. He uh, he's a teacher. Mm -hmm. He is a progressive. Good guy. Reached out to us. Said, look, I'm working on this book. Um, just want to tell you about it. And we're like, come on the show. Yeah. He had like 30 Twitter followers. Like nobody knows him. Like come on the show and tell me your story about this book. I put it up on Twitter and some people replied with, Bitcoin is antithetical to left-wing ideology. This is dumb. He first has to get over the idea of stop stealing people's money, all these things. And my point back to every one of those is you, if you're, if you're from the right, forget the anarchists, if you're from the right, you should want this book written more than any other book. You should... You you can completely disagree with people on the left, but you do not want them using this as a political argument. You want them on side on this. Fucking argue about everything else, but just have them on side with Bitcoin. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I definitely see what you're saying. I also think that um, I come at it differently. Okay. That I think that what Bitcoin does really effectively is it is a return to accountability and one thing that that really frustrates me um, around the current political uh, climate is that there's just a total lack of accountability mm -hmm. between representatives and constituents. And I think that Bitcoin has the opportunity and Bitcoin-related issues has the opportunity to force um, a much higher degree of accountability between those um, those elected to represent us and the constituents that they represent because for a few reasons. The, the first is that Bitcoin um, is such a high compression of time that if you send someone to office with an anti-Bitcoin policy and they stay, you know, if you're a senator, you get a six-year term. Think about what Bitcoin was like six years ago. It changes very, very rapidly, and so if you come to office, you know, you say I'm running on a 100% anti-Bitcoin platform, and I get elected. And halfway through, maybe Bitcoin reveals itself to many of the constituents who elected that person. And said, whoa, 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 I changed my mind. You know, this thing's clearly doing all of this incredible humanitarian good all over the world. This thing is improving markets. It's improving people's lives everywhere, um, which I think it is. You know, maybe maybe we need to change our approach. 
most other times you never see the impact of the platform that you send someone to Washington to advocate for within the context of the term that they were sent there on. And so there's this there's this opportunity for Bitcoin to to hold um, representatives really deeply accountable for the, the choices that they make because the other part about Bitcoin evolving so rapidly is that if you don't if you don't get involved and start your process, you get left behind really fast. I think that's hopeful. We had we had well, <laughs> sorry. Well, we had politicians send us into an illegal war in Iraq that became very clear afterwards. That was based on lies and bullshit and had nothing to do with any weapons of mass destruction that existed. It was all lies. We were taking an illegal war. One point five million people died. Right. That to me <clears throat> is a war crime. Bush, Blair should have been at the Hague and tried for war crimes. Why did you lie? And why did you send us into an illegal war? Tony Blair is now somebody who goes around and gives expensive dinner speeches and gets paid a lot of money. He gets consulted on a lot of important things by different groups. And I don't know. I don't follow their bullshit. Pretty sure George Bush is just playing golf, and cooking barbecue. We don't hold these people to account. They get away with their bullshit again and again and again. And I think in the now, what we've got is people who are essentially lying about Bitcoin because either they're they're in, uninformed or they're just uh, disingenuous. And the problem with these people is that when people tend to uh, argue over uh, partisan issues, they tend to repeat the things that the opinion leaders in their space say, whether that is a politician or that is a journalist, they will just repeat their talking points. Mm -hmm. Most of the people I'm arguing on Twitter, I'm repeating the talking points they've read in The Guardian or some bullshit there. <laughs> Now we have a guy on their team saying, you're completely right. This book, by the way, this book isn't to convince people from the right to, to, to become lefties. This book is to deal with FUD that comes from the left, from a guy on the left saying, here, this is where you're misinformed. I I, I commend the effort. I, I'll read the book. Um, you don't need to conv convince it. <laughs> yeah, but, I'm, but I'm, I'll at least buy the book. But what I'm saying, the point I'm trying to make is like, nobody on the right should be scared of this book. They should support this book because it, it, it's educating people who are different from you on why bitcoin is good. Totally. I think I think that the I think that the if I had to put myself in the shoes of the person on the right who would argue against that, they're saying that that any uh compromising on any ideology that is not absolutist um disqualifies you from for, from participation in the conversation. And I think we see this behavior elsewhere in the Bitcoin community. I think we see this issue elsewhere in the American political system. I think that that you know, at the end of the day, the more you're able to have uh, a true North Star around your own life and your family's life and the prosperity that you can bring to the world, the happier you'll be. And and my recommendation for those people is to st spend less time on Twitter and come to the UK. You should come to the UK. I should take you around. I would love to see you. You, you, I can show you how everyone just kind of gets along. We're all very civil. We drink, <laughs> we drink tea. We don't really argue. We just do it behind your back. <laughs> all right, man. Listen, I want to talk about mining a bit more. Um, so I haven't paid too much attention because we were traveling, but I was aware there was a heat wave in Texas, quite a serious one. And there were questions around asking people to conserve energy. Uh, we've all been looking at ERCOT thinking... Yeah, this is a great case study for Bitcoin, integrating Bitcoin in the grid. How did it stand up? Because I'm assuming you've paid close attention to it. Yeah, so so what's been really fascinating to see is that about a gigawatt of capacity was given back to the ERCOT grid during much of this time. What does that mean in real 
numbers? 1% of that grid. Okay. Which is enormous, right? So if you, you know, the, the energy system can, can, you know, of base load doesn't change. So to be able to see 1% of the total energy system, which is probably two to 3% of the ERCOT base load, um, curtail is, is really, um, is really like pretty impressive. How many machines would that be about if they were S19s? Uh, it would be uh, 300,000. 300,000? Wow. Holy sh... So there's that many machines plugged in? To yeah, there's probably about 300,000 machines wow. plugged in. That's insane. Um, across those sites. Before yeah. before mining, what would have done that? What would have been that demand response? It's Blackout. Like, it's like an entire nuclear reactor. Wow. Like a nuclear reactor is somewhere between 800 and 1,200 megawatts typically. And so anyone who's not listened to the previous shows we've done on this... Just trying to explain to them what this actually means, what these machines are doing. They're increase, they, they're allowing for an increase in the base load. Yeah. So, so the way that um, energy systems work is that there's there's like on, on on the supply side and the demand side, there's like two major behaviors. There's fixed generation, base load generation, and there's base load offtake con consumption, and then there's variable generation and variable consumption. So, for instance. Um, base load cons uh, generation would be like a nuclear plant or a lot of the coal or nat gas plants that are out there, um, not wind or solar because those have intraday peaks and valleys. Um, similarly, on the consumption side, you know, your the lights in your house or your HVAC, depending on the season, you know, the, the, the things that run low, you know, consistently in the background, that's your base consumption. Variable consumption would be like your dryer. I always remember there being like an anecdote in England that uh, at the interval for Coronation Street, it would go up loads because everyone would put the kettle on. Make a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think that's a northern problem, right? Yeah, probably. We don't watch Coronation Street. We watch EastEnders. EastEnders, yeah. But that's on the BBC where you don't have adverts. Uh, I'm more a keeping up appearances guy. <laughs> but Mrs. Bouquet. Oh, of course, Mrs. Bucket. <laughs> I can't believe you know who that is. <laughs> the fuck do you know who that is? My parents raised me right. Oh, man. So did you get uh, Only Fools and Horses? No, uh, oh. I I watch them. I watch Faulty Towers. Yes, Faulty Towers. Um, Black Adder. Oh my God, you got some good TV. I have great parents. That's why you get my humor. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so one percent—that's that, a lot. It's a lot. So th think when you think about what what a thousand—I mean, a thousand megawatts is like—it's like a city. It's like a city going on or off. Um, it's a tremendous amount of power, and the ability to have this uh, on a variable basis relieves enormous cost. To those to those um, ratepayers at the end of the day, because it, all those costs end up getting passed back eventually, um, and it lowers the stress on the system. It, it reduces the need for peaker plants. So when you think about, you know, ERCOT wakes up in the morning and says, "Oh shit, there's way more demand than there is supply." They have two options. One is to go call the coal plant operators and say, "Fire it up, boys." Um, the other is to go out into the open market and to pay a very high price for more power to, to basically import the power into your system um, because the people on the other side of that phone call know you're a forced buyer and so they're going to take you to the edge of what you could possibly ever you know pay for that. So um, either way, it's bad, right? And what a curtailable piece of the load means that there's now a thousand megawatts of capacity that don't have to get turned on at, at one of these high demand, you know, whether it's diesel or coal or whatever, whatever the generation source is. Um, or 
it's a thousand megawatts that don't have to get overspent on in the open um, intergrid market and then get ported in. And oh, by the way, you know, if you look at the geography of Texas, where is that power needed? It's needed in Austin and Houston and Dallas, which are southern. And so you got to move that power really far. And we know from past discussions that when mm -hmm. you move power over a long distance, not all of it shows up. So you've got to overbuy for the power because it's coming from further away. You know, there, there's lots of problems. Introducing a load like this to a system at the level of flexibility and the level of, of high-frequency response time that Bitcoin miners are able to offer is unprecedented. What have the miners swapped out in the system? Have they swapped out a need for you know, that demand response power or have they increased the total amount of power being put into the system? And then So that's a tricky question. Okay. Um, when new generation gets put into a grid, that's a multi-year planning process because you've got to manage the where that power is located. What are the zones? What's the infrastructure? What's the transmission? All the different um, types of upgrade and development uh, downstream needs from you know. Let's just say I build a new a new whatever generation plant. Plugging it in is hard. Getting approval to plug it in is hard. Making sure that it's all going to work is hard. Um, so that's all kind of proceeding, you know, that along the planning lines that happened in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. That's all kind of chugging along. The Bitcoin miners are a straight up reduction in demand. Right. So it's it's like it's like going to the supermarket and a, the first hundred people who show up in the morning saying, We don't need to shop today. Huh. And, and how how many miners could you know, how much power could the miners take in the system? Like, could they get to 10%? Would that be a good thing? 20%? Um, in Texas, there's probably not enough to go much more than we've already seen. Right, okay. Because um, right now, I think that, you know, the demand response hours are probably more valuable than the mining hours during the most congested times. Right, okay. But there was no situation, say, if those miners weren't there, that the system would have failed. Or is there? Well, it's tricky. So... I can't say it wouldn't have failed. You know, I, we, didn't, we don't know what would have happened. But, you know, the stress on the system would have been really quite significant. Um, they would have needed to force shutter, you know, rolling br brownouts or blackouts in certain areas or a possibility What's at a that brownout? point. Uh, a brownout is when you lose access to, like, firm power. So a brownout is like a partial shutdown. A blackout is like you've lost access to the transmission line. So a blackout is literally the lights go out and everything goes out. Everything goes out. But a brownout, what does that mean? Intermittent or yeah, it's it, it's like it's in um it's like uh insufficiently stable power. Right. And I'm sure they're I'm sure they're like you know who's gonna DM us after this? It's gonna that? be Blake. He's gonna say, Well, there's a technical definition. Well, do you know what we say to Blake? You should have come on the fucking show. You had your chance. <laughs> we asked you, you were busy. Can we get him on? Uh yeah, I, I can, I like I can Blake. DM him. I like Blake. He's a good guy. Um, I mean, this ERCOT thing's great. It's like super interesting. To, but do we know of any other grids who are now starting to look at this? Well, California's been struggling for a long time. Okay. I don't think they're uh, as constructive as ERCOT is. I think they've got different problems. I think that, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, how much have you paid attention to what's happened in Germany? A lot. Okay. So... It sucks. It's not good. Mm -hmm. This is kind of the the terminal velocity of a lot of really really bad energy policy. Mm -hmm. um, we are not in the same position as Germany, but we're on the same. You know, we're on the same roller coaster. You're not building any nuclear reactors. California's haven't they just decommissioned their last one? They're fighting to keep it open. Okay, 
Um, Has Schellenberg had anything to do with that? Because I know he he's raised a huge women. advocate. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a woman who is a great. She's a her title. She's a model, and then but she's a nuclear influencer. A nuclear influencer. Her tag on Twitter is Isodope. <laughs> That's brilliant, <laughs> Isodope. And she's she makes like pro nuclear energy education TikToks. Holy shit! We need to get I'm her. Following on. It. I think we need to get her. On. She's awesome. Isabel Boemicki, I, I can't, she's either Dutch or German, maybe. Yeah. Dan's got a big smile on his face at the moment. I just think it's funny. Yeah. That's all. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. Your wife doesn't listen to the show. Yeah, she doesn't listen. Um, she's awesome. Yeah. And and I think, like, you know, when I, one of the, talk about bipartisan issues, like, mm. to, to me, where we go from here is, like, there is no, to me, there is no, there is no palatable political position that is not pro-Bitcoin and pro-nuclear power. Yeah, so we're starting to dig into this. We've actually started to dig into this. Because I look across all of this. I want to understand it all. Look, I accept there's a climate issue. I also accept uh, we have a massive issue with not allowing people to generate energy. Like, energy is important for humans to flourish. And, I get it. And and the bad that will come from unstable power grids yes. and increasingly volatile access to energy and increasing price. Because let's just keep, let's be very, very, very clear. In Germany right now, it's not only that they are being, f that they're starting to have power rationing come to the market. Mm -hmm. They're also paying three times as much for what they're getting. Yeah. So if you told the average American household that your, your utility bill is about to triple. Get me that nuclear shit. Get Mr. Burns in. How, how transferable is it though? Like to, take what they've done at ERCOT and do it elsewhere? Because it's a very, it's like an isolated grid, right, at ERCOT? So, so I don't think, so I think that it's important that we clarify exactly what you mean, what they've done in ERCOT. The demand response and presence of miners? Yeah, and like, and sort of integrating that with the grid. I, I think that's very achievable everywhere. Okay, before we carry on with the interview, I do have a message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling at the moment. I'm only buying, and I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I have set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Now, Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Cake Wallet. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both my security and privacy because it doesn't share my important information with unnecessary third parties. And with Cake Wallet, not only can I hodl Bitcoin, but I can also easily pay privately with Monero. Cake Wallet is accelerating Bitcoin adoption since they now support buying gift cards instantly with Bitcoin, and these gift cards can be used at over 150,000 merchants in the US. And the coolest thing about this is that I can easily purchase the exact amount I need at register and have the gift card appear instantly within my Cake Wallet without ever needing to wait for any confirmations. I can even save an average 2% on my purchases and Cake Pay only requires an email and nothing else. To check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com, which is C-A-K-E-W-A-L-L-E-T.com 
or search for Cake Wallet in the Apple or Google App Stores. Next up, we have a BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. They heard about the difficulty I was having finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. And now BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now also expanding globally. They've also got this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you do want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more about what they do, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Compass Mining, who are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of theirs, and I am back mining Bitcoin. And actually, do you know what? I've actually been back mining Bitcoin for about nine months with Compass, and I've already mined over 0.7 Bitcoin which has pretty much paid off two of my S19s already. And it's so good to be back mining. It's been a really interesting year. It's forced me to learn a lot more about mining again. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass. And to help you, Compass has launched their Compass score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is, and it's based on a number of factors. Price, mine age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass has made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you are interested in mining, if you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Hold on, what is the deal between the grid and the miners? So in Texas, there's some uh, unusual dynamic. There's two, there's two driving forces behind why Texas is an attractive place to mine Bitcoin um, based on this sort of grid integration thing that, that's been kind of at the center of a lot of the conversation. Um, the first is that it's a, it is a fully deregulated market. So granular, hour-to-hour, real-time pricing, bid-in, bid-out. So if I if let's just say I've, I buy a con, a forward contract for one day of power, uh, or or one you know one month of power at at twenty five dollars megawatt hour, and then the the price spikes, I can choose to give that power back and make the difference. I can't do that in New York City. Why? Because it's not a deregulated power market. So there's a a, a group in the government called FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. They govern all power generation assets everywhere in the U.S. other than ARCOT because it's deregulated. And so the first piece is the, is the ability to interact on a very granular basis with the power. The second is that there's this other thing called uh, demand response. And other grids in the U.S. have demand response programs. The revenue from demand response programs in Texas is just higher. Right? There's more volatility, there's more congestion, it has to do with how the state is laid out and the load zones and all this other stuff. But the net net of it is that if you're a miner in Texas and you participate in a demand response program, there's more revenues available to you out of a program like that there than elsewhere. And is that because you get power cheaper, but on the condition that you turn it off at a certain point? You get paid to give the power back. You get paid to give it back. And at the time you give it back, do you get paid more than you get to mine? Sometimes. Yeah. You can. And I guess, does the miner have a choice? Like, they have to offer them the... So there's different programs. Right. Sometimes, sometimes you can get put to give the power back. 
sometimes it's voluntary. Sometimes it's it's you need to give back a certain number of hours. There's other everything it, is up for grabs. It's very complicated. Yeah, but yeah. but there's um, there's a lot of opportunity around intermittent consumption in ERCOT that's more attractive than elsewhere. So back to the nuclear thing, because again, we're starting to look at that now. We want to get some people on on nuclear. We want to understand it more. I have people. Okay. Give us your people. Because, uh, you know, I there was, um, Mark Andreessen was on Rogan talking about it as well. Schellenberg has been talking about it. Lots of people are talking about nuclear. And I did some research and I was trying to understand why people are against nuclear. And look, there are natural super green people who are going to be against this. Of course, I get it. They think of nuclear waste and it scares the shit out of them and yada, yada. But we've actually gone into the detail. We looked at it. So just a couple of eye-opening things that uh, at Fukushima, one person died. Mm -hmm. And that's even under dispute. <laughs> uh, with um, Chernobyl, what was it, like 26, 32, something? It was something like that, yeah. These aren't great. They're, they're, every death is horrible. And, and there's been these other externalities, like the, the region of Chernobyl is... It's a no-go zone. And lots of people got cancers. Again, it's all terrible. But if you actually compare the what the impact of burning coal and what that's that done to the environment and certain lung diseases as well, like let's be realistic. There are consequences and risks of them all. But the benefits, it appears to me, on nuclear far, far outweigh the risks of any burning of a fossil fuel to generate almost unlimited clean power. Yes, doesn't make any sense. So, so let me let me take you back even a further step behind yep. nuclear, which is that this idea in a, in you know modern times that we can't have access to as much energy at a very low cost that we want is is false. We can have as much as we want. We just need the will to invest in it. We need the time and the effort to improve the technology. The technology doesn't need to be improved to get there, but but th you know I think about you know. When you think of the the sort of the, the the Moore's law cycles, right? Nvidia, when they released their G, their GPU for the first time in the in the earlier two thousands, they were releasing a new chip size uh, and software every six months. We're on version four of nuclear reactors. Seventy years later, it took us seventy years to get to version four. If NVIDIA was doing it, it would have taken them two years. Right, okay. So we're 140 times slower in nuclear than we are in chips. But is it slightly different in that when you're making a chip, the, the external risks of a bad chip or designing a bad chip are small, whereas the external risks of designing a nuclear power plant in the wrong way, you might get nuclear meltdown. And So I, uh, I expect a bit longer. But what it sounds like to me is like, Barely, like hardly any new nuclear plants are being built. Commission, oh, sorry, you you found two in the UK. Well, I had a quick look. There seems like there's quite a lot coming over the next few years. I don't know if like India are building seven or something over the next five years. There's four coming in the UAE. Two of them are done. Two to come. Um, it's a it's a four reactor development. Um, there's two that are being worked on in Georgia, mm -hmm. um, and then the UK has some that are coming. Um, I know that Poland is actively engaging in working on some of this. Uh, India obviously is working on it. China is very aggressively working on this. But the U.S. isn't. The U.S. is. The U.S. The US is, have a couple. Yeah. So right. the U.S. is working on something called an SMR, uh, which is a small modular reactor. Um, think about. Is that like a regional? So uh, right now in nuclear, re if I go and say I'm going to go build a nuke, right? What that means in the U.S. is a light water reactor. You're going to build it. Um, it's going to need, you know, there's a two and a half mile 
containment zone and a 10-mile containment zone. It takes an enormous amount of land. Nobody wants one near them. It's a pain in the ass. That nuclear reactor would generate somewhere between 800 and 1,200 megawatts. You want to build them two together because then when one is getting refueled, the other one's spinning. Um, so you're never the site is never fully down. By the way, you know far more than this me. What do you mean refueled and one is spinning? Um, so like if you build uh, like if you build a nuclear reactor, you want to have two big turbines. Each one of them has nuclear material in them. That's how you do the the heating and then the spinning. I have no idea. How do you think a power plant works? Um, they burn shit. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> they burn coal. I've never seen Spin, Harry look so disappointed. Spins a turbine. The turbine generates energy. Yep. So, in a light water reactor, you use a nuclear fissile material. Yeah. Um, generates a shitload of heat. Heat turns water into steam. Steam rotates. Huh. When you refuel a nuclear reactor, you put new fissile material in the core, and then it burns hot again. Right, and okay. then it keeps spinning. So, but but you're doing all this stuff, all this maintenance, all this monitoring, all these things. So, so if you have two turbines, two reactors, when one of them is getting refueled, you have to turn it off to refuel it. Yeah, the other one is on, keeping all, the whole plant working. And you so get rid of like, all the waste shit. Exactly. So it's like redundant stuff. Okay, and so when you said, you know. So do they not ever have the two running at the same time? They always have oh, two, do. but they can turn one down and not lose any plant operations. Right. So when you talk about those two, mm-hmm. if you were talking about the entire grid of Texas, just for perspective, how many nuclear... You you could you could run Texas right now on somewhere between 70 and 100 nuclear turbines. Okay, so that's a lot. But how, how many turbines can you have on one site? Uh, there's sites that you... Some sites have four. Okay. Uh, so they, I mean, still a lot. There's still a... You know, to power all of America, you're going to need thousands. Uh, yeah, you would need. Yeah, you would need maybe a thousand. Yeah, you would need. You'd need probably about a thousand. Yeah, interesting. Which is not that many. And when you think about like all the money that we've plowed into wind and solar, if we just spend that money on nuclear, we'd be way further ahead. Yeah, I think there is going to be this shift. I totally agree. I was actually reading a new scientist about these new fission reactors that they're working on. There's one that's being developed, but they said it's probably be completed in about 2054. So for, yeah, if you're going to go with, with the, like the new, new technology stuff, there's, there's a range of technologies between ones that are like readily available right now and ones that are like fundamentally solving like big physics problems that are new physics problems. Like those are like 30 years out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the, the difference between fusion and fission. All I know is about spinning some plasma shit. So the stuff that we fi- got at the start of the universe. Fission sounds cool. Things break apart. Yeah. Fusion things forge together. Like the sun. Exactly. Yeah. So like in the sun. Stop laughing at me, dickhead. The, <laughs> Daddy's laughing the, at me. The elements go from like the lighter elements to the heavier elements. In fission, you go from the heavier elements to the lighter elements. Why is fission seen as cleaner? Um, fusion is seen as cleaner. Fusion. So in fusion, you take two things and you put them together. In fission, things break apart, but they're, they go from being useful and dangerous to not useful and still dangerous. So fission is what we have now. Mm-hmm. So it's about a fusion. Fusion is yes. the next thing. Yeah. The 2054 for the first one. It's, it's going to take time. some time. It's going to take some time. You got some shit to figure out. Smarter than me, you're working on it. Maybe I could help them. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but look, I've not spent any time looking at nuclear. I'm, I'm just starting to look at this. I want to talk to people. I want to understand it more. It just sounds to me like it's the sensible route. And anybody who's against it is a moron and will probably not be in power. Yeah. So to me, nuclear is just a fundamentally apolitical, technological, human net benefit. Yeah. But it's not an apolitical issue if you're, certainly if you're from a, the greener end of the political spectrum. I've, you can go out there, read what I've read, everything they're saying against it. Yeah. So their, their perspective is that their expectation is that human quality of life should be worse and that is the only version of reality that's acceptable to them. Well, their version of reality is the risks aren't worth it. Their re reality is that every risk is not worth it. That's true. But I think there's, in places like Germany, I think there's some PTSD from Chernobyl still. Like, if, if that could have been significantly worse for them. If the winds are blowing the other way. Is that what it is? Yeah, something to do. They got lucky. Have a look up. They got lucky with Chernobyl to do with the way the, we the wind was blowing. You need to bring on someone who's smarter on nuclear than me. Well... Okay, man. We're going to do that in Bedford. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do that in Bedford. We're going to get Bedford's nuclear expert. <laughs> I thought that was you. No, it's Mad Ricky. <laughs> Mad Ricky plays the banjo down the high street. Have you found it? No, I love it. It's something to do, with the, something to do with the winds. They got very lucky. There is risk with everything. Uh -huh. the, the prevailing and overwhelming um, fear around nuclear is a function of narrative and marketing, not a function of scientific reality. It's been successful marketing in this last couple of decades. We, I blame The Simpsons. <laughs> Seriously. That's a fair point, actually. Like if, if, the, the three if we fish. just didn't have Blinky the three-eyed fish, <laughs> we would have abundant power everywhere at, at a penny a kilowatt hour. I want three-eyed fish. I personally think <laughs> three-eyed fish are cool. Why not? Might be good. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go, this go, nonsense. All right, man. Okay, so listen, price has been a bit shitty. And we're reading about some miners are in distress. Hate are coming out. Shout out to Jamie. How you doing, Jamie? Uh, they're still keeping every Bitcoin they mine, but we've heard of distress sellers. I think the lowest the price hit was what, 17 and a half? Yeah, 17, 700 or something. Yeah, we saw a dip to there. We're back up to like 22 now. But like in my head, my basic rough calculations, having spoken to you, there should be no miner who, none of the big miners should be losing money on mining Bitcoin at 22K at the moment, not even at 17. So what is happening there? Is there like other structural issues with these companies? Um, so the short answer is, and this is only from my layman's observation of the yeah. industry, um, I think there's a there's not one thing. It's not just one thing that's happened. So you can look at some who, you know, maybe there's some miners who, uh, actually, before we go there, um, the big the big thing is that these are not miners necessarily who are unprofitable at the end of the month on their bills. These are miners who thought that they either had access to additional capital, were funding expansion, were, were paying for future orders of machines. You know, these are, you know, a, a miner's not, sell, you know, selling their Bitcoin reserves to cover their power bill at the end of the month. In right. these examples, I think, much more so these are miners who are saying, okay, we've planned for X, Y, and Z amount of growth. The way that we're going to get there and finance that growth has changed given the changing market dynamics. We are choosing to liquidate some of our balance sheet to go and fund that growth. So they're going, they're selling them to go and buy machines that they thought would be bought by capital investment. Well, and let's let's play out an example. You wake up in the morning, it's November of 2021. You call your Bitmain sales representative and you say, I want to buy 
one machine. And they say, okay, this machine costs $75 a terahash. You look at the mar market today, you say, hmm, it's trading at about $100 a terahash. So if I'm going to get this thing in 90 days or 180 days or something, that's a great price. I pay you 35% of the price up front. I owe you another payment in the middle, and then I owe you another payment 30 days before it shows up. But Bitcoin goes from 50-whatever, 60-whatever, to 17-whatever, 20-whatever um, over that time period. And so what you thought was a great deal at $75 a terahash now is trading for $35 a terahash. But you have a contract. But you have a contract. And so the people who lent you the money to go do that or the people who, who bought your equity to go do that are saying, you know, calling you and saying, um, what the fuck, you're going to be paying over market price for something that you can only, you know, every dollar you spend now is only worth 50 cents in mining assets. So it puts an enormous amount of pressure on how procurement happens within the mining industry. And so I don't know what any individual company situation is, but that's the dynamic that's challenging about some of these future orders where miners go take out a loan, they're locked in at a price with a manufacturer, and then when it comes to take receipt of that machine or to make the next payment, the value of that machine is significantly below where the contract was struck. And so the people who finance that growth might say, I don't like this deal as much anymore. Can they hedge that? Are there futures products they can hedge with? There's a lot of thought and time that's gone into how some of the manufacturers do it. Sometimes the manufacturers introduce adjustable rate contracts. Sometimes there's there's opportunities to hedge Bitcoin price and get kind of part of the way there. But I think like what happened for a lot of the operators in the space is they said Bitcoin's going up forever. Need you know, we went we went from basically we, we've gone through three three kind of chapters. The first chapter was, oh my God, Bitcoin price is going up. I can't get any miners. The second chapter was oh my God, we've got all of our miners, but there's no rack space. The third chapter is, oh my God, why did I do any of this in the first place? <laughs> but it's that thing. It's trying to build these businesses during volatile times. Uh, I remember back in, I'm going to get him on the show, Pascal from Ledger on the show, because mm -hmm. I remember back during the 2017, 2018 bull run and then crash, he just said, building a company in these times, this kind of volatility is so hard because the majority of your orders come in a very short period of time. You have to provide customer service, and then the tap turns off. You don't know when, yada, yada. Now, they've had a very, very smooth uh, uh, the very very smooth couple of years, and so it's because they learned everything during that period. <laughs> We're the same. Look, you know, everything is a derivative of Bitcoin. Our downloads are our businesses, and we've planned ahead for it. And, you know, bear market won't affect the show that we make. We can still travel and make it, but that's come through good planning. I think other people just haven't been prepared for this. And and you know and I I I agree with you. We, you know we think similarly. We think that you know Bitcoin is is you know a multi decade, multi generational incredible opportunity. Doesn't mean that the water's always warm and smooth. There's chop along the way. Um, and so you know planning for those downside scenarios and trying to manage risk first and upside second um, is you know is the prudent way to do it. And and. There's operators and companies that are out there within our industry that have done their best and made good conservative decisions and still blown up. Is there distress deals out there for the miners? Um, like, are you looking at things? I like a shark. I a vulture. I have yet to meet a market that doesn't have opportunity. I think every market's got great opportunities in it. I think that you know discerning capital allocators tend to rise to the top over time and. 
and you know it's it's about process and rigor much more than it is around kind of you know anything sharky the empathetic vulture uh, the SBF <laughs> you, of ca mining. you catch you catch more bees with honey my friend <laughs> Oh man! Well, listen. Look, it's 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 super interesting again to watch to see this play out because I would have thought more than anyone the miners would be prepared. Yeah, they seem to be so diligent on their numbers. But I guess what you're saying is right. Look, the they can't produce the ASICs quick enough during a bull market. The the manufacturers hold the power. I I think it's changing. I think it's changing. I think that I think that the level of maturity that we see from existing manufacturers and some net new manufacturers you know in this cycle is more mature than it was in 2017 and 18. Do you think we will see consolidation though? I think we have to. And do you think there's any risk of having consolidation in the mining industry where we get a few huge players? Is there a decentralization risk with that? Um, I asked somebody who wants to grow a massive company. <laughs> uh, you know I'd love to be I'd love to be telling you that that you know bitcoin's decentralization risk has hit zero you know i think that mining risk is pretty low i think that i think that miners are are um there's not a lot of incentive for bad behavior among miners frankly i think that i think that you know our job is to produce computing power as efficiently as possible um, and hand it off to other people who know what to do with it better than we do um, and that happens in the form of pools, and that happens, you know, over time. And and I, you know, I'm I'm very bullish about kind of the in, the improvements around, you know, stratum v2 and some of the stuff that's gone on um, from a pool decentralization standpoint. I also think that um, as markets for hash rate mature, it's also another synthetic decentralization of Bitcoin uh, mining, where you know, let's say, you know, let's say you're running a farm with you know 100 terahash, um, and someone buys two terahash from you. Well, now you've got a contractual obligation to deliver them that hash rate in a certain way on a certain timeline. And so as we see, you know, sort of more mature financial products around hash come to market, um, I think that the the sort of the uh, ability for miners to behave badly um, continues to go down. It feels like there will be there's some synergies with the way energy is bought and sold in the deregulated Texas market to what you will see will happen with the yeah, the market for buying and selling hash. And do you think that's an alignment that's an alignment between the two that's happening? Um I, you know, I think that I think that where Bitcoin and where Bitcoin and energy's relationship goes from here is one of the most underappreciated and underpriced things that's happening in this market. I, I've been watching the conversation around the and I'm taking your question in another direction. I've been watching the um, the discussion around the long term, you know, security budget conversations happen, um, and I just kind of think they're they're silly, right? Like the, there's two things that I think um, make Bitcoin's long term viability brighter than ever today. Um, the first is that the purchasing power of Bitcoin continues to go up um, on a cycle by cycle basis, right? We're not crashing to 3K. We're crashing to 17 and a half. Yeah, somebody asked me recently about that, and I said the, the only number long-term I care about is what is the lowest price Bitcoin hits each year. Not the highest. I mean, I mean, it's interesting, but the lowest price it hits each year. That is trending up. It's trending up. So, you know, so that's that's the first thing that I think is solving this, um, this sort of, you know, long-term incentive structure thing. The second is that, you know, I just, 
I just don't buy this idea that the full spectrum of the incentives for miners is captured by the block subsidy plus the transaction fees. I think that the in the sort of the revenue space for miners and the role that miners will get to play within large and complex uh, energy systems will unlock net new streams of revenue that are not related to on-chain Bitcoin disbursement. Um, and so whether that comes in the form of, of services or financing or, you know, straight up energy um, trading, you know, there's just a ton that's going to get unlocked because you've brought a new market participant to a space that didn't have one before with new opportunities and business models to be built on top of it. I'm, I'm incredibly bullish on non-Bitcoin native mining revenues. Yeah. So after the Adam Wright show we made, Rusty dropped me a DM and he said, the thing I like most about this is the idea when people are discussing, you know, about long-term inflation should be considered what they've missed out is that we're mining we will have mining as a service but me and danny were talking about that if there was no block reward we get to the stage where there's no block reward and you were talking about these sites such as the, the landfill sites you would be paying for someone to take that methane and burn it and turn it into uh, bitcoin but there's no bitcoin to be created so you might as well just burn it off so all you really have access to is actually the transaction costs now, if there is an, still a small part which is coming from the block reward and some transaction costs, maybe the subsid, you subsidize the difference by paying someone to burn off the methane. But, but if there's not enough coming from a block reward, what is the mining as a service? Um, That's the one I can't figure out. What is mining as a service where there's zero, low block reward or and very minimal transaction fees? I can't figure that one out. So... And well, I, I, there's, there needs to be some transition to transaction fees. Yeah. But there is a native revenue opportunity to being a flexible grid balancer, right? Right now, if you go to Texas, there's negative power prices because it's more expensive to shut the turbine off and to turn it back on when you think about the maintenance and the labor and the, the uh, uh, negative impact to the infrastructure. So you might as well have a toaster on. You might it, it, it's it is immediately positive sum just to offtake the energy. But what, if you didn't have that taken off the energy, how could you get rid of the energy? Is there no other way? Can you not just like I don't know? It ends up getting to somewhere, but the price continues to burn negative. So I look at it and say, all right, well I've got a great you know a Bitcoin mine is a huge capacitor. Yeah. So you look at it and you say, all right, well this megawatt hour is negative ten dollars, um, and you think you know the the market's kind of digesting it at negative ten. I show up and I bid negative nine. I'll take the nine and I have the ability to do so at scale. All I need to do is just turn on my mine, take the power, turn it back off. And so there's zero Bitcoin changing hands and I got paid $9 for that megawatt hour. Hmm. Is there enough, I guess if enough miners were doing this, they would come to limit to how many can go out and offer this. Yeah, I think I think that that's I think that's that's certainly the case. But you know, more importantly, Bitcoin mining economics trends lower on a multi-decade basis. Yeah. My main focus is 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 how do we make Bitcoin more useful? Because the more useful Bitcoin gets, the more on-chain transactions there will be, and the higher the purchasing power of a sat goes. If I focus on those two things and build a great business to mine Bitcoin alongside of those those activities, then the emergent technological phenomenon that is money, that is Bitcoin, gets to continue to grind forward, uh, and humanity will prosper along the way. 
How much are you guys thinking forward now about the next halving? Obviously, it's something that is relevant to you. The block reward will halve. Now, if the price has doubled from now at that point, great. But like, how much are you forward thinking about that? Because the halving seems to get front run, but also there are very good arguments that it's narrative driven, it's momentum driven. Now, like fucking grave happens again. Sweet. But like, how much do you have to start thinking or when do you have to start thinking about that? And are you already thinking about that? And I know, look, if the price doesn't go up, some the, the most inefficient miners will go offline first, will lose all their... Are there still any S9s out there? There still are. Well, they'll all be gone. Fuck them. See you later. Um, and then some of the most you know, unprofitable miners. I know, I know the network readjusts. But still, how much are you guys planning and thinking about that? Um, we take a pragmatic approach to risk. You know, we, we don't want to overplan because then you forget to build things. Yeah. We don't want to underplan because then the water goes out and your pants are down. And and neither is a good place to be, right? You know, so so you know, it's a it's a healthy concern. You know, the the best way to plan for the having is to control the shit out of your costs. Okay. And you're doing that. How big is grid now? Um, how much can you tell us? Very little. <laughs> <laughs> Just to jump back in the conversation a little bit, do you think next like bull run? The same business plan will be the one like hold every Bitcoin you mine, or do you think it'll be to offload periodically? Um, I think that I don't think it's one or the other. I think that okay. when when we see for you know we've seen both strategies, right? We see you know some miners who sell every day. We see some miners who raise money to pay bills to keep more Bitcoin. Um, and we've seen both of those strategies make money at different times in different parts of the cycle. We've seen those, you know, companies be rewarded in different ways by um, by the market. I think that the the burden of that decision is on shareholders and stakeholders to tell the management teams running those companies if they want to pay them to become a Bitcoin holding vehicle, mm -hmm. or if they want to pay them to be a cash flow generating business and reward them on the stability of those cash flows. Um, that, and, and I think there's, there's plenty of shareholders who want both of those different options. Hmm. Good answer. Okay, outside of mining, before we finish up, long-term, <laughs> long-term, Harry, your long-term Bitcoin thesis, I know you're a, you said to me before we started, your investment thesis is unwavering, you're a Bitcoin maxi, but like, how do you feel like the trajectory of Bitcoin is going now? In terms, as a whole, when you look at everything that's happened, whether it's regulation, adoption, technical development, do you think do you think we're moving well? Do you think we're moving at the right pace? Is there anything you look at and you think, here's an area we need to focus on more? Um, I'll, I'll tell you sort of my first principled approach, which okay. is that if I think I'm right and that the world is wrong, then I have to ask myself, how am I going to vastly monetize my correct opinion. Because if I can't think of a good way to monetize my opinion, I might not be right. And so I look at, you know, because the market's usually faster and, and smarter and better than me at, at deciding what reality is. So, you know, when I look at Bitcoin and the process and the progress um, that we've all kind of been been on, on the same pirate ship together figuring out, um, you know, I think we're I think we're making great progress. I think Bitcoin is working for people who choose to find out how to best work with it. You know, do, could we be nicer to each other, and could we? 
be, you know, focusing more on education and could we be building more interesting businesses? Yeah, probably. Um, do I think that if you, you know, if you, add, you know, it's funny, I, I was thinking recently about like, um, when, uh, when, Bit, you know, when Bitcoin went back down to like 3000 after it was up at 20 for the, in 2017, 18. It's brutal. And I was thinking back and I was like, you know, this might not work out. I don't know that this is going to really like work out. And like this time I'm like, all right, it's going to work out. It's going to be fine. Um, and so it's, it's interesting as the years go on and, and, you know, you know, there's like the old saying in, in traditional finance, which is like, it's not timing the market, it's time in the market. Um, that is what, is what really matters. You know, I think that, uh, the, the, the quote unquote problem with Bitcoin is, is that, you know, it, uh, it removes, uh, it doesn't reward your bias towards action, right? Human beings, you know, to feel in control of our, of our lives, we choose to do things. Um, and that's how we feel in control. And what Bitcoin demands is that we don't do things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so by nature of that behavior, <laughs> it, uh, it has, it has forced its way out of more action-biased hands into less action-biased hands. But it provokes us to do things. <laughs> it, it tests us. It is the cattle prod like, that, that listen, revolves the world. Listen, motherfucker, you might be wrong here. Just go and sell a bit of your Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, I don't have sort of like a, a deep technical opinion on are we far enough along. You know, if you're worried about not being far enough along, write some code or fund someone else to write some code. That's as simple as that. The best I got. <laughs> I don't know how to help you otherwise. <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I've got to admit, when we hit down to 3,000, I was like, what if this doesn't come? What, like, what if nobody cares? What if, what if we lose interest? What if this is just like some weird slow death? Uh, uh, I was there. Emotionally, emotionally, that felt like this might just be dead. This cycle feels a lot more how I felt in 2008. I'm like holy shit! I don't know what I don't know what's going to break next. We were let down by a crypto contagion. Yes, we had. We just made a show with um, David Morris from CoinDesk. He wrote an article saying he was essentially saying, "Look, Bitcoin was born out of the 2008 financial crisis and meant to save us from this, and we've just done the same in crypto." And I say crypto, not uh, as a shitcoin. I say it because we cannot avoid the effects of leverage crypto funds going out and also buying Bitcoin. We can't, uh, we can ignore crypto and we can say it's all bullshit. It still affects us. Yeah. But he was saying, we've essentially repeated the same mistakes of 2008. We have over leveraged, unregulated, greedy bastards creating a contagion for their own greed. A few small people affecting a large group of people. And out of that, there's a lot of, a lot of misery that's created. I, I would put a finer point on it and say like, like, let's talk about the mechanics of how that happens, right? Someone buys a Bitcoin. They send a Bitcoin to a counterparty. They take out a loan against that Bitcoin. They gamble with the proceeds of the loan. The thing that they gambled the proceeds on go up. Then the people who borrowed, who, who had the Bitcoin posted to them, lend out that Bitcoin somewhere else. Everything that happens until they do that last step is fine and doesn't affect Bitcoin. It's that last step when then they go and lend the Bitcoin back out and then everybody blows up because the first loan breaks because prices go down and then the second loan breaks 
because prices went down and then prices go down further mm -hmm. because there there becomes this forced selling environment um you know where if you've got to sell assets to meet a margin call it sucks but that's the end of the story if you've got to sell assets to meet a margin call and then your original lender also sold away all the collateral and can't get that back, that's when you get into contagion territory. Mm. Um, it's that second layer of rehypothecation that happens um, into the collateral asset, not just the proceeds of the loan that gets spent gambling. All right, Harry, man. Listen, good to see you as ever. Do you want to pump grid? Have we not got to shit on Fort Worth first? What, what's that? Oh. The first city to mine Bitcoin. This is my... This is my I, I commend them for taking such a bold and aggressive stance on Bitcoin in the future. I think what the Fort Worth story has shown us is that um, the cheapest political points in the world right now are pro-Bitcoin. If you just come out as super pro-Bitcoin, there are a bunch of people who are going to love you right away. Yeah, you get 30,000 yeah. followers like that. Click. Like that. It does not matter how much hash rate you have actually committed to generating <laughs> So if you think about them of, from like a terahash per follower ratio. What do they got? Two S19s? It's not a lot. Single digits machines. <laughs> so is my guess. So, so I'm I probably mining as much. I, correct. <laughs> so I think it's an incredible story that they're willing to take the plunge and be pro-Bitcoin in public. I think that the takeaway is that every other city and politician should try out a pro-Bitcoin platform and see how well they do on Twitter. See, this is positive leverage. Mm -hmm. This is just leverage. It's just leverage. It's just leverage. All right, we are done now. We are done. We are done. Harry, good to see you, man. Do you want to pump grid? Do you want to tell anyone anything? Where, can they get any of this sweet, sweet merch? Or no, no, no. Mer merch is the only thing scarcer than Bitcoin. When do we get some of this sweet merch? I can, I My, can, I can have a conversation. I got a hat last time. Your hat. It was good. It was beanie. Yeah. Beanie's good. I haven't got a hat or a sweat. We can change that. We'll fix it up. All right, tell everyone. Uh, we're great. We mine Bitcoin. Um, I think that I'm going to use my plug space today just to say that um, things can get pretty bleak. They are going to be much better and sooner than you think. Soon this will pass. All right, my brother. Love you, man. Love Take you, care. bro. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to reach out to me, please do get in touch. My email is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. I do try and reply to all messages, but you can also go and check out my Telegram group. There's a bunch of people in there always talking about Bitcoin. All right, I will see you all very, very soon.